Oh, kids are great, aren't they? Thank you, Charmaine and Glenn Jickling, for reading scripture for us this morning. Have you ever met someone famous? You think about the most famous person that you've ever met. I can actually say that I met Wayne Gretzky. I remember I was 13 years old, February 15th, 1980. Do I remember, why do I remember it that day? Because I remember they went out that night, played against the Washington Capitals. He scored seven assists, which he's done three times in his career, which is a record, which you can just Google and find the date. So that's how I remembered what date it was. Um, <clears throat> but I remember we had, myself and a couple of friends, we got into Northlands Coliseum. I, <clears throat> I don't know, I think security was a little lax back then, but uh, we watched the Oilers practice. And we went down on ice level and stood just outside of the dressing room. There was a barrier up, and every once in a while the door would open, and these little 13-year-old boys were like trying to get a look down the hallway and saying, who is this? Who's next? Who's coming now? And one by one, they'd, they'd come out, and they'd dutifully sign our little booklets. I still have mine right here. <clears throat> Can't even make out half the names because they're just scribbled messes. But I have Wayne Gretzky's signature right here in this little booklet. Anyways, Wayne comes out. <clears throat> we're excited. He's just early in his career. And so we, you know, there's lots of promise that this is going to be the next one, right? He's going to be the great one. And so I remember he's carrying a stick. None of the other players had sticks. So we want his stick. We're bold. We're 13. Wayne, can we have your stick? He's like, no, no, we can't have your stick. Go, can we buy your stick? He's like, well, maybe. How much money you got? And we go back and forth like this. And we're walking all the way through the lower levels of Northlands Coliseum to where he's going to go out in the parking lot. And this guy's trying, trying to sell me his stick. But I want his stick. So I'm like trying to get my friends to give me money so we can like pool all of our resources and buy this stick. Anyways, Wayne, if you're watching... Maybe he is. Who knows? We just never know. I've forgiven him. Because he crushed that little 13-year-old boy's spirit when he said, no, you can't have this. I'm just kidding. And he left. Anyways, we went back, got a whole bunch more autographs. Um, some of them, which are like Hall of Famers and pretty famous people. So that was a special day for me. Who is this? We asked. Just like the crowds on that first Palm Sunday. Together, we're going to discover that this is, in fact, a very important question. Who is Jesus? And it matters a lot and because how it, we answer that question and then how we respond to that matters a lot. And so today, as you know, we're commemorating Palm Sunday, which is the start of Holy Week. These uh, terms, Holy Week and Palm Sunday, these aren't biblical terms. This was something that Christians added in the 4th century to kind of mark the anniversary of these dates and the special remembrance of them. Palm Sunday, of course, is connected to the triumphal entry. And um, if you've been reading along in the daily reading plan, uh, we've been encouraging our congregation to read uh, from McShane's reading plan. There's some of these, I think, back at the back table. You might be able to find a, a download on the, on the website. But uh, it's, an it's an intensive reading. There's four readings every day. 
But if you've been following, you've actually have already read about the triumphal entry four times, most recently just this past week. Because all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record uh, this historical event. This is a real event. This really happened. This is as real as your birthday, or maybe if you're married, as your anniversary. And when the remembrance of those events come around each year, you do something to mark that special occasion. And that's what Palm Sunday is. It's a remembrance of that. And all four Gospels, they dedicate a major portion to the final week of the life of Jesus. And so this term, Holy Week, some traditions use the word Passion Week. Passion coming from a Latin word which means to suffer or suffering. And so it's again, it's a remembrance of the suffering of Jesus. And so during this week, we remember these incredible climactic events. We... um, Assume that Jesus arrived into uh, Bethany on Friday night, kind of the uh, start of the Sabbath, laid low on Saturday. Saturday night, they had a celebration. And so if you're following in the Gospels, some of these events get moved around a little bit, depending on how the author wants to um, portray them and, and sort of his purpose behind them. But generally, you can piece all of the events together and know almost exactly by the hour, what Jesus was doing on each day of Holy Week. And so, of course, on Sunday, Jesus and his disciples, they go into Jerusalem, and uh, <clears throat> there, uh, that entry was so incredibly dr- dramatic. It was read for us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. They return to Bethany in the evening, because that's where they're staying. Bethany is about two miles east of, of Jerusalem. And they did this on Monday, too, and it was on Monday that Jesus cleared the temple, and and, uh, and then the same thing on Tuesday, back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. Wednesday is known kind of as Silent Wednesday. There is not a lot recorded that we know what happened that day. It's assumed that it was the day that Judas would have returned by himself to Jerusalem to make arrangements to betray Jesus. Thursday, of course, they make the preparations for, to celebrate the Passover, this remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from, from Egypt. And how he passed over the, uh, the, 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 young, the young boys by marking the, having the, the, the Jewish people mark their, their door, doorposts with blood. And so this angel of death passed over them and delivered them, saved them. See, all of these themes are running throughout Scripture. And then they go and that Thursday they then have their final supper. And if you're reading in John's gospel, five chapters, John 12 through 17, all record what happened, what Jesus taught his disciples there in that upper room on that Thursday evening. It's it's then as you put the timeline together that it was either very late after dinner or maybe even after midnight. So very early, in the early hours of Friday morning, they had left Jerusalem and uh, ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying and his disciples are sleeping. And, uh, and it's there, of course, that Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And then he's put on trial. Um, and even as I think about this, this is kind of going on through, through the night. And it was these several phases of trials between the Jewish people and then the Romans and 
Nobody really wanted to take responsibility, right? They just passed the buck to everybody. We know that the crucifixion then, crucifixion then takes place on Friday, probably between the hours of like nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. And so you can think of those hours on Friday, the suffering of Jesus, ultimately his death and his burial. And it's those specific events that we remember when we gather on Good Friday. And so we do all of this for good reason. Now, we know what happens on Easter Sunday, but I find that we are quick to jump to Easter Sunday. Because a lot of, like, we understand that Sundays are a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Every Sunday, in a sense, is Easter Sunday. And that's so core to what we believe as Christians. But that's why even during Lent, we've slowed down to enter into and to remember the suffering of Jesus that he paid a price for our sins. And we'll do that again on, on Friday morning corporately and together. And so this week is incredibly significant in the life and ministry of Jesus. And therefore, it is significant to us because it ultimately wraps up Jesus' mission here on earth to save and to redeem humanity. And it is something that truly is worth remembering year after year. And even as I thought about this message this morning, I says, you know, like this is kind of like Christmas. Like you, how many Christmas messages are there? How many Palm Sunday messages are there? But I know in my own heart, I often have to go back to what I already know and to be reminded of the truth and maybe recommit myself to living in light of what I know to be true. As Pastor Quinn mentioned, we have a devotional guide that we've prepared to get you through this week and to just kind of every day take some time to reflect on the events of these last week. Not necessarily in the order that I, that I laid out here, but, but they're there to take you into these different places. And so I encourage you, if you, I don't know if we have some available, but you can certainly download it from the upcoming uh, events page. And so Palm Sunday this commemoration of the triumphal entry. And there's no doubt that this event has been planned in detail by Jesus. He knows what lays ahead. He has already predicted his death at least three times. He knows what's coming, but his disciples don't. And in our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, it has so many details And the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem passed through a smaller village called Bethphage. And Bethphage is on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Now it's less than a a mile east of Jerusalem, about a kilometer and a half. And the journey from Bethany would take them through Bethphage, over the Mount of Olives, down the mount, through what's known as the Kidron Valley, and then entering into Jerusalem from the east. And Jesus needs a ride. And so he sends two unnamed disciples on ahead to Bethpage where, uh, with instructions for them to go get a donkey and bring her colt as well. And in these simple acts, Jesus is already publicly disclosing who he is. It's the Passover season. And so people were already crowding into Jerusalem. And during this time, people's anticipation and excitement ran high as they hoped for the Messiah to arrive. Because they had been longing for the Messiah. 
They were longing for a king to come and liberate them from this awful Roman rule and occupation. They were an oppressed people. And every Passover they would remember and wonder, is this the year that the Messiah comes to deliver us? And so any glimmer of hope, uh, rumors start, and it would just spread like wildfire, and it would just set them off into a frenzy. And they had heard about this Jesus, and they wondered, would he be the one? And then the whispers start to rustle through the crowds. He's coming. Jesus is coming. And so the crowds uh, ran out to meet the coming entourage. People tried to get a glimpse of Jesus, like some 13-year-old boys trying to see Wayne Gretzky coming down the hallway. Was it finally happening? I mean, you can almost imagine this, right? Like, I think when we read the Gospels, because they're so descriptive, sometimes we have to use our imagination and kind of enter into that. And imagine that you are a part of this very large crowd. And people are talking about Jesus and they're getting all excited. And and, and so they they run out uh, to meet him. And as they meet him, they realize that there's people coming with them. And so they turn around and now they're leading the processional and then Jesus and, and then his disciples followed along. And as they came along, it says that the people spread their cloaks out on the road, like a a red carpet welcoming a special guest. But what they were really symbolizing was their submission to him as a king. Now, others, of course, we know took palm branches, hence the term, Palm Sunday. Matthew just says they took branches from trees, but John's gospel makes it clear that they were, in fact, palm branches, and they spread them out on the road and No doubt some of them, you know, probably the kids were running around waving these palm branches. Everybody was celebrating. They're in a total uproar. And these palm branches, they symbolize victory and triumph. And they were celebrating the arrival of the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And so you've got these cloaks on the ground and these branches being waved. And they're shouting. They're cheering. This is a lively celebration. They were singing. Not a mask to be seen. Hosanna. Hosanna, which is simply a Hebrew expression meaning, oh, save. Save us, Jesus. They're making their expectations of Jesus known. It's loud and clear. Hosanna to the son of David. No mistaking that they understood that Jesus to be maybe the Messiah who would save them? They thought that Jesus would save them and liberate them from this Roman oppression. And so they're giddy. They're thrilled. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're singing, which was a psalm, Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. It was a familiar psalm to them that they would sing because it expressed their hope for a Messiah for Israel. And so everything is coming together perfectly. The Passover preparations, the expectations of the Jewish people, their hope for a Messiah, their expectations would be fulfilled and he would come and establish an earthly kingdom. But they were misguided. And here's Jesus riding on a donkey, 
And while the crowd cheered, we know that Jesus wept. And he wept not because he was feeling sorry for himself. He didn't weep because he knew what was before him. He wept because as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he can see the entire city of Jerusalem. And he weeps for the people who he knew still didn't get it. They didn't understand that he was not coming on a mighty horse of war. He wasn't riding in on a white stallion. He was coming in as a lowly, humble king who would, in fact, give his life for them. And they didn't understand it. And it broke Jesus' heart. And he wept. And so no wonder Matthew says in verse 10, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Like a bunch of 13-year-olds trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, wondering who this is coming down the street. Do you wonder who Jesus is? Have you answered that question in your own heart to say, I know who Jesus is and I'm staking my life on it. Who is Jesus? Well, if we investigate this a little more, we're going to discover some elements or some answers to that question right here in our passage. And Matthew's record has some clues for us. And the very first one is an obvious one. We can say that Jesus is the prophet. This one is obvious, as I said. It's questions asked in verse 10, who is this? And then in verse 11, right away has an answer. People say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But this really seems to be just kind of a generic answer, almost as if just stating the obvious. You know that guy from Nazareth that everyone's been talking about around Galilee? I mean, he's supposedly raised some people from the dead, and he's healed the lame, and he's done some great things. But, you know, he's just that prophet from Nazareth. Earlier in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, they assumed that he was one of the prophets, but they were hoping he would be the Messiah. And later in Matthew 21, verse 46, it says that they, that's the chief priests and the Pharisees, they looked for a way to arrest him, that's Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. And so they were held in high esteem. And they didn't want to see anything bad happen to even a prophet. And so they saw him as important, but really no different than some of the other prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah or other Old Testament prophets. It's kind of like today, isn't it? If you stop people on the street, and you know, you know how they do those kind of like interviews on the streets? I like to do that sometime. Just go around and say, who's Jesus? And I would bet that we would get this smattering of answers, but they would probably boil down to things like, oh, he was a good teacher. He was a rabbi. He was a good man. Because we don't see him as the prophet. 
No more than the people in Jesus' day saw him as the one who would ultimately fulfill Moses' prophecy recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, which reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. This is Moses speaking. You must listen to him. Just think about that. You must listen to him. And then he speaks on behalf of God as a prophet. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And so we know that a prophet was someone who spoke for God. They would declare God's will to the people. He was a teacher of God's truth. And I like how Moses said, he says, listen to him and then God will put words in his mouth. So Jesus is the prophet that Moses himself prophesied about. And we've just spent five of what, the last six months or so, studying the Sermon on the Mount, this great collection in one place of all the primary teaching of Jesus. And remember how it ended. We looked at these very difficult passages not that long ago. They had such a clear warning to not just hear the words of Jesus, but to live them out, to put them into practice. And when you and I take what Jesus teaches us and we put them into practice, we are, in fact, acknowledging who Jesus is by doing that. We acknowledge that his words are truth, that he's speaking on behalf of God, that he was a prophet declaring God's truth. And so we live that out. So he is the prophet. Secondly, he's the Lord. Jesus calls himself the Lord in verse 3. He tells the two disciples to go on ahead and get a donkey and a colt. And he prophesies even that that they would have to untie them. I just find some of those little details fascinating. And then he tells them, like, if, if anyone stops you and asks you what you're doing, you simply say, the Lord needs them. Not your Lord or a Lord, but the Lord needs them. And that whole scene seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Like Jesus just going, just go take some donkeys. They don't, doesn't say who they belong to. Um, Just says you're going to find them there. He predicts all of this. He prophesies all of this. And in doing these little things, Jesus is clearly demonstrating and revealing who he is. He's, in fact, demonstrating that he has control over the events that are about to unfold. And so, as Lord, he is sovereign. That is, he is in control of all things. He's in control even of the fact that there's going to be a donkey there waiting for them. You see, Lord is one of the most common titles for Jesus. And it has so many meanings. Among them are things like this. It refers to the owner of possessions, such as the owner of a vineyard or the master of a house. So think about ownership. Him being our Lord. He has a right to our lives. The Lord also speaks to the authority of Jesus. So with with words, remember he, he commanded the raging wind and the winds waves to stop. And he commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Lord was often used as the opposite to a slave. 
The Apostle Paul, he referred to himself as a servant of God. And that's a good thing, in fact. It brought much joy to Paul's life. He found much joy in that. Lord was also a designation for God. It was the the Greek translation of the Old Testament word for God, Yahweh. And so using the, the title Lord basically equated Jesus to a member of the Trinity. It's a recognition of of his divinity. And so Jesus is Lord. That little three-sentence phrase became a confession of the church. And Romans 10 verse 9 simply states that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Just declare with your mouth. Say it out. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You find references to the Lord throughout the the, the Bible and particularly the New Testament and Paul making reference to this. And he's the Lord of Lords. He says the King of Kings. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's this great hymn And Paul records it there, and then he says at the end of that, he gave him the name above every name, Jesus. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the confession. He is Lord. So he's the prophet, he is the Lord, and thirdly, he is the king. And Matthew states... Uh, Rather matter-of-factly, I think, that in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then he quotes the prophet, which was the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These words here in verse 5, they come as a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Words spoken 600 years before these events. And so Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy by ensuring that he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. Now the crowds themselves, they would have known this. The fulfillment of this prophecy excited them all the more. It fueled their praise. It added to their enthusiasm. Remember, they're expecting a king who would come and liberate them. And so Jesus riding in on a colt, the foal of a donkey, was what they had always imagined. And now it was actually happening. But not in the way that they thought it would happen. And so if you take all of these names, all of these roles, as it were, that Jesus was the prophet, that he was the Lord, that he was the king. They're really all elements of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. You know, he's the voice of God as a prophet. He's Lord of all. He's king of his kingdom. Not an earthly, but a spiritual kingdom that he's established. But we live it out now, this kingdom life that he calls us to. And maybe he wasn't the Messiah the way that the Jewish people expected him, but he was the Messiah anyway, because he would, in fact, liberate them, not from Roman oppression, 
not from chains and bonds, but He would liberate them from bondage to sin. And so He offers salvation and rescue and liberation from sin. And so, friends, just remember today, when you think about who Jesus is, remember that He's the prophet that speaks truth. Remember that He's the Lord to whom we submit. And remember He's the King who reigns. And so how do we respond to this Jesus? Well, three ways that we can respond, three takeaways I'll leave with you. Number one, and it always starts here, is that we give our life fully to Jesus. Jesus is who He said He is. You can trust that He lived, that He died, that He rose again, that there were witnesses to all of these historical events. There was a real crown of thorns. There was a crucified king, even though the soldiers mocked him. And he was a risen Savior. And friends, we can trust him. And so like Romans 10.9 says it, we, we begin by confessing that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And we are saved. You think that's, is that easy? Yeah. It's grace. There's nothing you have to do. He loved us so much that he was willing to give his life to pay that ransom, to pay that price for sin. He gave his life. And he offers this gift of salvation, this gift of forgiveness to anyone who would receive him. Anyone who would say yes to Jesus. Anyone who would confess him as Lord. And so I wonder, have you said, declared boldly, Jesus is Lord? Don't do that lightly because that's going to come with implications. But have you said Jesus is Lord? Have you thought about it? Are you wrestling with this? Do you wonder what it means to say Jesus is Lord? I hope that as you seek this out and you discover the truth of who Jesus is, that you will come to know him personally. That you will put your trust fully and wholly in him. And friends, it's Enough to say Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. But if that's where we leave it, there's real question about whether or not we've really understood that. And I refer you back to some difficult messages earlier this month about what it means then to obey the teaching of Jesus and what, is some, what, what does that actually mean. And so after you give your life to Jesus, you then need to follow him. Because if you've confessed that he's Lord, then be prepared to go where he tells you to go and do the things that he tells you to do. Just like the two disciples that Jesus sent, they went, and just like he told them what to say, they said and do what they, they did, what he told them to do. Where is he asking you to go? Or where, what is he asking you to do? See, sometimes those are straightforward and we just 
we just do them almost naturally, but we know that He tells us to love our neighbor, and so we take steps to love our neighbors. We do things very intentionally. We think about other people first. And those are questions that we should ask all the time. God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Today, give me eyes to see the needs around me and help me to respond to those needs in a way that will will build up other people and encourage other people and will demonstrate not just my love for them, but ultimately that I can point them back to the reason that I serve them, and that's Jesus. When we ask those questions all the time, we're really saying, Lord, you are Lord of my life. It's called submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, you know, I, th- these decisions aren't on mine. And I, I, in my own life, I had to go through this. Like, when I was thinking about a career, I just was thinking about whatever I could do to be successful and make money. There's no question that was my only motivation. I never asked God about what He wanted me to do. And bit by bit, God started to break that down and draw me in and then call me into ministry. But that's not for everyone. I remember a guy that I worked with, um, and I was sharing about Jesus to him. And, and, and he just, no, I, I could never do that. I could never do that. I mean, Brad, tell me, like, what do you mean you could never do that? He goes, well, I could never do what you're doing. You know, not, not, I wasn't, this wasn't working in a church. <laughs> I should have explained that. I was working at a chemical company loading tank cars with chemicals. Might explain a few things. Um, but, um, but Brad was a coworker of mine there. And he just couldn't get over that hurdle. Because he thought that everybody who gives their life to Jesus and says yes to Jesus is then going to be told to go into full-time ministry. Well, in a sense, that's true. We, we all are ministers. We're all called to serve other people. But what do we do? Every major move in our lives, God has used Scripture to lead us in that direction. Usually, it's actually had to do with with Abraham. And so, Tina and I were married just a few years. We were living in Calgary, and we just sensed the Spirit just kind of making us a little restless. And what's next? And as we discerned that, we get a call from a church out in Ontario, just outside of Ottawa, a small town uh, called Arnprior. And the whole situation was very uncertain, but we just sensed God saying go. <laughs> and, and like Abraham, God didn't tell him where to go. It's just go, and Abraham went. And so we thought, well, if he's telling us to go, we better go. And when we left there ten and a half years later, now almost 12, 13 years ago, I remember that day like it, as if it happened yesterday. I could tell you exactly where I was on the road. It was a short drive from our home to the church. And halfway along there, I remember exactly where I was. It was like as clear as day, God's just saying, Norb, are you willing to release this church? Because I've released you. You're not willing to let go. But are you willing to lay it down and trust me to provide? what he did with Abraham. Are you willing to lay down your son? And when Abraham said, yes, he still had this confidence that God would provide. Friends, when Jesus is Lord to us, we follow him. We listen for his whispers. We respond. We obey his teaching. We submit to Him as Lord. That's what it means. 
Thirdly, we worship him. Worship, of course, includes expressing our praise and our adoration with our lips. We commonly do that with singing. I know that that's such a challenge when we're wearing masks and it's kind of under our breath. And it just, like, even today, right, it's Hosanna and we want to shout it out. But it's like, oh, we can't. But we can do that with our lives. Because worship is far more than just singing. Because if we honor God with our lips, but our heart is far from Him, it doesn't work that way. We posture our hearts in a way that reflects our heart's desire to honor Him. We can't be like what I'll call those fickle branch wavers on Palm Sunday. Because you know what? It's very likely that when they discovered that Jesus wasn't going to liberate them the way that they expected that he would liberate them, they went from shouting Hosanna on Sunday to shouting crucify him on Friday. There was no commitment to who Jesus was. There was no understanding. And through our simple obedience, friends, we honor God. We, we honor Him with our whole lives. We worship Him with our lives. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, therefore, in view of everything that God's done for you, in view of everything that Jesus has done for you, in view of all of the events of this week, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in view of all of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We give of them of our lives. And so as we enter Holy Week, as we again consider who Jesus is, prophet, Lord, King, Messiah, the one who would come to rescue sinners, may we be reminded as we are reminded in the kid spotlight of God's great love for us. And that he took deliberate action to show us how much he loved us. That Jesus, by dying on the cross, his sacrificial death, he, he, we have forgiveness of sins, past, present, future. And friends, that should never get old for us. We've got to talk about this at least once a year. <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded on this Palm Sunday that it may have started with Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And all the people were excited and enthusiastic about what that might mean and their preconceived ideas and assumptions that they made about who you would be were followed then by some devastatingly dark days. And Father, we know how the story ends. But I pray, Father, that as we enter in, that we would actually enter into the suffering of Jesus so that we, as Paul instructed us, can 
can truly see in view of God's mercy, if this is what Jesus was willing to do for me, I'm willing to give him my life. I'm willing to follow him. And I will worship him. Father, may we bring an offering to you today. A good, pleasing aroma to you. The offering of our lives. And may the expression of our lips be true to the desires of our hearts to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.